Hey everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens and welcome to this very special Point North one-shot for the classic, I dare say classic, 1988 fantasy movie, Willow. I kind of love this movie, you guys, and I cannot wait to talk about it. We have a little business to attend to first, though. Before we get started, a reminder that you can interact with me live here in the YouTube chat if you're watching live after the fact. That will be somewhat less effective. If you have questions in the YouTube chat, please tag them with Point North at Point North should work and highlight those questions so that I can see them more readily. They will leap out at me. Or if you are over on Twitter, you can either tweet directly at Point North Media, which is, of course, the account that I use over on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag OneShot, which is a surprisingly underused hashtag. That may not last if we continue that hashtag going forward. We'll see how this whole thing works out. This leads me, of course, to the topic of OneShots here at Point North. From time to time, there are stories which I would love to discuss, but which can't support in and of themselves a full podcast series or a full seminar series, or from time to time, there are texts which can support a full podcast series or a full seminar series, but which I don't have time to invest in. When that is the case, I am going to do these special one-shot discussions live here on the YouTube channel where we can just talk about a text. They're naturally, I think, going to be a little more brief a little more high level, perhaps a little more superficial than the deep dives that we usually go into with the texts that we study at Point North. But I can't wait to to really spread my wings, to, to, to look at disparate texts, to take this opportunity to talk about things that ordinarily I would be unable to talk about. Um, all of this is possible, of course. I'm seeing everyone here in, in the YouTube chat. You guys are all fantastic. Thank you all so much for joining me. Um, all of this is possible, of course, thanks to your generous support. Thanks to the folks over at patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. I have already been able to advance my plans for Point North. If you have subscribed to the Point North newsletter or followed it on Twitter, Point North Media, or followed on Facebook, facebook.com slash pointnorthmedia, then you will have seen the first newsletter, which is replete with announcements for this upcoming week. It is going to be a busy, busy week, and I cannot wait to get into everything. Basically, I'm doing something super fun every day this week. This is the job that I get to do, thanks to you guys. I should say too that there is a milestone over on the Patreon page, which will allow me to add these one-shot lectures into the regular podcast rotation. So they won't be an as and when, when I get a moment, if I feel so inclined kind of thing, but will instead be a more regular date, at least I think once a month to start. Your support is the only thing that can make that happen. So please consider heading on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia and pledging a dollar a month or whatever you can afford. And I should say too, this is really exciting and I'm really looking forward to doing this. If you pledge on the Patreon page at the $5 level or above, then you get from me a postcard every month. And that postcard isn't just going to be a high thanks for your support, though those are wonderful too. It's going to contain some kind of customized thing. There's going to be words of encouragement or some obscure factoid or some etymology, perhaps. Perhaps I'll do an interesting word of the month that I can send out to all of the $5 Patreon subscribers. That's going to be a ton of fun. I'm already planning what I'm going to do in the first month. So head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. Here endeth the commercial. Let's talk, you guys about Willow. Everything here seems to be working. Oh, 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 a quick clarification. Yes, there has been some uh, question over how these one-shots are going to be available. It doesn't 
feel like I can make a uh, a podcast feed for these, though that may, in due course, if this becomes a regular thing, that may be the most efficient way of, of handling that. But if you are a Patreon supporter, then you can get the exclusive Patreon audio feed. So after the fact, I will put up this post over on Patreon with the video and another post with the audio. So that will appear in your podcatcher of choice if you are a Patreon supporter. It's all very technical. You guys, we're just all doing the best that we can. We're just all trying to make it work in an imperfect system. But you know what? We will bend it to our will and we will have fun discussions about stories. So help me God. Let's talk a little about, um, as, as I try and catch up with the YouTube chat, which is already rolling on. This is fantastic. You guys, you guys. Um, Garrett says, I first saw Willow at a drive-in theater. That's amazing. That would be a fantastic way of seeing this movie first. I actually have a very specific memory of, of going to see this movie in the theaters around the time that it opened, which was unusual. I, I didn't go to the movies a lot as a child, but I have the clearest image in my mind of driving home after seeing Willow for the first time. And I was in the car with my grandparents. This was 1988, so I would have been 10 years old. I was in the back seat of my grandparents' car and I was sitting quietly whispering, reciting almost these names and, and words as though they were themselves spells, as though they possessed themselves some magic. If you have known me for more than five minutes, you know that I'm fascinated by linguistics. I'm fascinated by constructed languages and the power of names. And I have to say, George Lucas gets a lot of criticism, a lot of very justified criticism for some of his naming in the Star Wars universe. But in Willow, the names that spring forth from the story, the names that were not invented for the purposes of the screenplay, which Lucas didn't write more on that in a moment, I guess, the names contained in this movie, I absolutely love them. So I would sit in the back seat of the car, driving home from the movie theater, just reciting Elora Danan, Tira Sleen, Mad Martigan, Bav Morda, Nelwins, Daikini. Daikini is a fantastic, fantastic word. And Elora Danan has stood out in my mind ever since I first saw this movie as just an incredibly evocative name. It feels like the kind of name you could start with that name and tell this story from there. That could be the seed or perhaps the acorn that leads to this entire unfolding narrative. You just start with the words Elora Danan on a blank page and you are good to go. So by that point, I was already a huge fan of fantasy literature. I had already read The Hobbit. I think at that point, I must have been either at or very near my first reading of The Lord of the Rings. I had consumed Dragonlance novels and the Belgariad novels by David Eddings. I had devoured everything that crossed my path. So I was deeply entrenched in fantasy at that time. And this movie still stood out. And it stood out primarily because in many unexpected ways, this film feels as though it is gesturing towards something much larger. It feels as though we are seeing a narrow perspective on a world that is fully realized, fully fleshed out. There are things happening beyond the frame, even within the context of this film. I'm thinking in particular of the scene at the crossroads where Eric shows up with his army because the war is going badly and we never see the war right until the end of the movie. Arguably the final assault on the fortress is the conclusion of the war. But up until that point, we haven't been thinking about the war. We haven't been thinking about a grand conflict. We've been thinking about Elora Danan. We've been thinking about this prophesied child. And the fact that the movie continues beyond the frame, the fact that it, it gestures toward all of these peripheral elements, all of this 
grandeur and all of this history and all of this geography, that really speaks to me. That really communicates with me directly. So from the first time that I saw this film, it has been an absolute favorite. It has been, I didn't see it for many years. And it was only perhaps in my mid to late twenties, maybe my He says, tempting, but no. I had completely adopted that specific inflection into my, my everyday vocabulary without realizing that it had come from this film. So this film had clearly influenced me at a very deep and profound level. That is not to say that it is a classic. That is not to say necessarily, or at least without hyperbole, that it is an uncomplicated film. It has its moments. It has its troubles. The first two acts, I think, are very, very solid. The third kind of has this cascade problem. It kind of drifts into the tropes of a fantasy climax without necessarily anchoring them or motivating them as well as the first two acts are anchored and motivated. More on that, I guess, as we move through it. Yes. As Mariana says here in the YouTube chat, it does have that leaf on a larger tree Tolkien thing going on. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes, good. Um... Uh, Phoebe says, a fleshed out world like the first Star Wars film before George Lucas started over explaining things. There are so many parallels within this movie, bet uh, so many parallels between this movie, I should say, and the first Star Wars movie, A New Hope. Um, there are so many points of intersection. There are so many echoes. There are so many reflections. If you are an adherent of Star Wars ring theory, which if you've listened to my podcast story in Star Wars, you will know that I am not particularly, but this is the theory I should say that says that the entire Star Wars pair of trilogies, what would you call that? A sextology, perhaps the, the first six Star Wars movies are in fact a very complicated structural endeavor that they, they rhyme like a poem rhymes and that the first moment of the Phantom Menace is supposed to coincide somehow with the very last moment of return of the Jedi and so on and so forth as they draw nearer to this point of inflection. And I'm not particularly won over by it. And I think part of my argument is this, if you can draw those parallels within the Star Wars universe, you can all draw those parallels between Star Wars and Willow. So therefore, Willow deserves as much a spot in Star Wars ring theory as, well, at least Return of the Jedi, if not the prequel trilogy, too. Yes. We'll talk a little more about that later as we move through it. Yeah. Jane says, Dragonlance novels, awesome. And right before she said that, Crash Test Bonnie said, Eddings, exclamation point, exclamation point. Yes. Yes. 80s fantasy is the best fantasy. It is true. <laughs> All right. Oh, Demon Arrows says that she would love to stay and watch, or he would love to stay and watch, but she's got to get up. He has got to get up in six hours. Sorry, pronouns are hard, you guys. Demon Arrows, thank you so much for joining us. I hope that you will enjoy the rest of this video after the fact. Good. Um, yes, a lot of love for Dragonlance. That, that is restorative. That gives me life, you guys. That is a very good thing. I adore, adore Dragonlance. So, Willow. The movie was a Lucasfilm production with the story written by George Lucas specifically for Warwick Davis, who he had met on the set of Return of the Jedi. The two had immediately connected. Lucas had this idea for a story that he'd been kind of rolling around, decided that this was a, a feature vehicle for Warwick Davis, who, when Willow was filmed, was 19. Warwick Davis is a baby in this movie and yet manages to carry himself with an authority and with an integrity of, of a man much older. We are reminded, as has already been said in the YouTube chat here, of course, that Warwick Davis is 
not a national treasure. I think to describe him as a national treasure is to do him too little justice. He is an international treasure. He is a global treasure. Warwick Davis is a man among men. I adore him. And I think he's genuinely fantastic in this film. I think that he is given a fair amount to do, but manages to draw forth from this script a great subtlety and a great integrity. I love watching him throughout the course of, of this film. Um, Lucas didn't write the script. It is often credited to Lucas informally uh, as a Lucas script, but it was not him who wrote it. Bob Dolman wrote the script. He is perhaps better known as the writer of the Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman movie Far and Away from 1992. Willow was directed by Ron Howard, who had by this point already made something of a name for himself with kind of contemporary sci-fi movies or, or contemporary fantasy movies. Splash and Cocoon had both come out by this point. In fact, Ron Howard turned down a guaranteed payday to direct the sequel to Cocoon in order to direct Willow. He would also, incidentally, direct Far and Away in 1992. I'm kind of curious about going back to Far and Away, you guys. I don't think I've seen that movie since it came out, but I kind of want to go back and watch it again to see how it holds up. The movie made almost $60 million off a budget of $35 million, and though that is almost you know, a double return on investment, it is nothing like enough to justify a sequel, particularly then. There has been, over the course of the last year, some discussion of... Willow 2, I guess. Ron Howard has been talking about this publicly. He is interested in reuniting both Val Kilmer and Warwick Davis in a direct sequel to this original movie. I can't imagine what that would be, but I would be fascinated to see it. I'm, I'm on board for it. Yes. According to Box Office Mojo, Willow uh, was the 18th. I have miswritten this uh, in my notes here. Let me check that. The, is it not the 18th? It may not be the 18th. It is the 18th. Uh, <laughs> highest grossing movie in 1988, which, you know, was a competitive, I'm sorry, 14th highest grossing. I just did a search there just to confirm. I knew that I'd written it wrong in my notes. This, 88 was the year of uh, Rain Man, of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, of Coming to America, of Big, of Twins, of Crocodile Dundee 2, of a little movie you may have heard of called Die Hard, Cocktail, Beetlejuice, Working Girl, A Fish Called Wanda, Scrooged, and then Willow. That's Pretty impressive. That's a pretty impressive year for movies, um, which I think in part explains why it was that Willow went a little overlooked and hasn't really entered the canon in the way that we might expect. When you mention Willow to people, you generally get two responses. You either get, oh, I loved that film when I was a kid, or I have never seen it. I don't know, personally, anyone who doesn't like Willow. <laughs> I'm sure that there are people out there. It got a very mixed review at the time. There are still critics of this movie who, who, who lambast it for being derivative, for being predictable, for being somewhat clunky, for being somewhat forced. And I think that there's justification to all of those criticisms. But in my personal experience, I think people either haven't seen this movie or generally like it very, very much indeed. I don't know how that matches your personal experience. Yes. Garrett says in the YouTube chat, 1988 would be regarded as one of the best years for movies ever, if not for 1989. <laughs> yeah, and we're mentioning the, uh, the novelization. There's actually a, uh, there's actually a trilogy of, uh, I believe it's called the Shadow War Trilogy. Uh, the first book basically matches the events of Willow, and then there are two sequels, which were co-written with Chris Claremont, the comics book writer, who I'm sure you know if you have ever picked up a copy of X-Men. Yes. Best year for movies, says Kate Matt, was 1939. That's a podcast idea, Kate. 
That is absolutely a podcast idea. That would be fantastic to sit down and go through the history of movies and figure out which year had the best slate of films possible. I would be, I would be there for that. Yes. Sarah Thomas calls out a fish called Wanda, which I must say I adore. Yes. Good. So let's get into our discussion of Willow itself, he said, as he both checks Twitter and simultaneously lifts his glass of scotch. Mm. It's a little early, but my voice still isn't quite right. So this is medicinal, you guys. This is super medicinal. So let's get into the movie. And we begin with what is absolutely a convention of the genre. We begin with what is, if it hadn't already been a classic feature, it would have been a classic feature by the time Willow rolled around. And that is the opening crawl, a cold open, which establishes the stakes of the conflict that we're about to enter into. This is the opening crawl. I wrote this down because it's just perfect. It is a time of dread. Seers have foretold the birth of a child who will bring about the downfall of the powerful queen Bavmorda. Seizing all pregnant women in the realm, the evil queen vows to destroy the child when it is born. Which is pretty great, you guys. Firstly, you don't need the descriptor evil when your character is, is named Bavmorda. No heroic figure has ever been named Bavmorda and never will be. But I love that we are immediately establishing, but we're coming in late to a story that we already know. And this, I think, is something that, that skilled writers, that ambitious storytellers can do in a, a genre or a, a subgenre that is as well-defined, that is as codified, if you like, as high fantasy. One of the things that you can do is play off your readers or your viewers' sense of the geometry of this particular kind of narrative. Hey, there's a prophecy, there's a kid, the, the evil queen is trying to find the baby so that she can kill her. You know that. You've seen this story before. You've heard these stories before. This is, I mean, almost literally biblical. This has been around in fantasy fiction for as long as there has been fantasy fiction. So rather than spending the first 15 minutes getting into this, we establish it in an opening crawl and we move right past it into something that is much more immediate, something that is much more visceral. Watching Willow again, which I have done a few times over the course of the last couple of days and did this morning, right, as preparation for this live discussion, um, I am startled by a couple of things in this film. And one of them is how dark and bleak the opening is. We are immediately cast into, into the middle of the story. This is in any other story, or at least this is in a different version of this story, perilously close to the climax. This is, for the mother, at least literally the climax of her story. She is done after this. And then we get this montage sequence of the fleeing midwife racing across the countryside, traversing snowy mountains and God knows what, trying to get away from Bavmorda. And immediately we get that sense of scale. We get that sense of... of history. We get that sense of place. We are gesturing already at things that exist beyond the frame. I find it to be, in its ambition, an enormously skilled, an enormously powerful opening. It is a little let down by some of the effects, by some of the cinematography, and that I don't think is true for 1988. I think this has dated a little badly. It doesn't look as timeless, as we might hope. There are a few points in the movie where, and I'm not talking necessarily about the the technical special effects, because of course that is inevitable. And anytime you go back more than about five years, you're going to be begin to see those cracks. But I'm thinking more about the way in which it is shot. I'm thinking more about the actual aesthetics of the cinematography. It feels a little dated. It feels a little 
flat, perhaps. And that's particularly true when you contrast it with the most successful fantasy franchise ever. You know, when, when you look at this in the context of The Lord of the Rings, you're seeing two completely different approaches to filmmaking effectively. And, and we must remember that they are separated only by a dozen years. It's not that long in the history of movie making. A little over a decade gets us all the way from Willow to the Fellowship of the Ring. Though, if you go back to Fellowship now, you'll find that that too has dated quite a bit. Um, <laughs> Kate says that she would love to hear the podcast, but she is bad on mic. Yes. Yes. And then we get immediately, you're right, you're right, you're right. We get immediately to the, um, we get immediately to the, the setting of Alora Danan in the, I mean, basket of reeds. She is cast off down the river. And that is, as, as has been called out here in the YouTube chat, absolutely a biblical reference, but more than a biblical reference. It is, it is an archetypal reference. And immediately here, we have a number of archetypal references vying for our attention. And that they conspire together, I think, to make the story feel mythic rather than tropey. It doesn't necessarily feel as though we're going down a checklist. It feels as though we are drawing on elements. And I think that in part, in part, this is because Bavmorda is an evil queen rather than an evil king. There is a subtle subversion there that keeps me, at least, engaged, keeps me focused. But we are drawing on the prophesied chosen one, the prophesied savior who will, who will destroy the evil queen and all shall be well, though we're going to wind up with an ironic twist. It, it's a type B prophecy this time around, um, though we'll talk about exactly how that works, too, by the time that we get to the end of it. Um, so we have this, this prophesied chosen one. We have the, the purging of the children, which is handled a little more lightly in that there is a specific child that Bavmorda is trying to kill, not every child, as we see later in the film. There is a ritual that has to be conducted, so it isn't practical for her to just murder all children in the kingdom, or I guess multiple kingdoms across the continent, across the world. The geography is a little fuzzy in that regard, but certainly Bavmorda isn't going out and murdering children by the handful. She's a, a little more focused than that. And that's a strong choice because it gives us a better a grounding for our conflict as we move into the story itself. And then we have the Moses story. Then we have the setting of Alora Danan in the basket of reeds and the casting off down the river. And we have already, even within the first five minutes of the movie, as, as those gorgeous titles are playing out and we get the what is effectively the, the theme for the movie playing out too, we're already getting a sense that there is a contrast here. There is, there is something at play here within the theological framework, within certainly the moral framework of this movie, because we have prophecy and we have evil. These two things are, are absolutes, you know, at, at least our understanding at the beginning of the movie, thanks to the opening crawl, is that the prophecy is a prophecy, that there will be no interesting subversion, that there will be no twist, but it will play straight. Clearly, Bev Morda believes that that is the case. Then we have, you know, the sense of evil. She's described in the opening crawl as the evil queen. But then we cast out Elora Danan onto the river. And that has an interesting kind of... of, of either theological or thematic perspective associated with it. Because what we're introducing here is either an element of providence or an element of luck. And either of those things kind of stands at odds with the concept of capital E evil and the concept of prophecy, or, or could at least stand against the concept of prophecy. 
do we believe that Elora Danan is guided to Willow by the direct intercession of a greater power? Is some force for good leading her to Willow? Or is this luck? Is this happenstance? Is this, hello, you catastrophe? Well, maybe, maybe a little of both, maybe a little of either. But it immediately prompts us to look at Willow as a movie that is more complicated than we might expect it to be, particularly in terms of its discourse on good and evil, and and certainly, certainly on power. Power is very odd in Willow as we move through the story. Magic power, I'm thinking in particular here. So we'll discuss that a little more as we move through, but my argument is that even the opening moments of the story prompt us to look at the story more carefully. They prompt us to lean in a little, rather than just assuming that this is going to be your standard boilerplate tropey fantasy novel. Yeah. Um, Mariana says, yes, but Lord of the Rings was the renaissance of fantasy film. You can't compare them to anything before. I think that's, um, I think that's fair to a point. Um, I'm leery of any narrative that surrounds a piece of art that presupposes that this piece of art emerged from a vacuum. You know, we are all influenced consciously and subconsciously. The Lord of the Rings may have set a high bar for fantasy. It may have been, and I certainly don't disagree with this, a fantasy renaissance. I think that's absolutely true, but it didn't emerge ex nihilo. It, It came from an accumulation, an accretion of discrete sources. There are influences in the Lord of the Rings that can be found in movies of of every possible genre, in stories of every possible genre. And the reciprocal, the the, the crucible of of pop culture means that these elements are, are more difficult to track and more difficult to identify than we might otherwise imagine, I think. It may feel as though it is somewhat disingenuous to draw a line between Willow and the Lord of the Rings. But the truth is that Willow influenced and the Lord of the Rings was influenced by, and I think that that there is a, a, a relationship of some kind between these two things, you know? Even in the way that, that Willow casts out its ripples into pop culture and then the landscape, the, the surface of pop culture is changed by those ripples, leading us by hook and by crook to the Lord of the Rings. And I, I do think it's, it's fair to say that the Lord of the Rings is not directly comparable and certainly we shouldn't use it as a means of we shouldn't use it as a metric uh, by which to critically judge Willow. I don't think that's fair at all. If nothing else, the the the, the ambition and import of these stories is completely different. Like, like, could not be more different. For all of their superficial tonal and thematic similarities, these two stories could not be more different. And of course, the specific elements of their similarity too, because we're basically going to begin this story in the Shire. Yes. Uh, Joseph asks, will this be in the audio podcast feed too? And if so, which? Yes, it will be the audio podcast feed over on the Patreon page. I'm, I'm getting enough uh, correspondence as I'm doing this that suggests that I super need to set up a uh, a uh, one-shot podcast feed. So it is possible that by the time you are listening to this, you are listening to it in the one-shot podcast feed. We'll see how it all works out. But yes, an audio version will be available somewhere. Yes. Good. Good. Angela says, I think Willow might have been one of the stepping stones to Lord of the Ring movies. Yes, yes. Good. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. Becca's skipping ahead, but Becca's getting to uh, Becca's getting to one of my favorite parts in the entire movie. Uh, Willow's kids, you guys are just adorable. They're just adorable. It's it's 
extraordinary how immediately we are grounded in the experience of Willow Ofgood, this no mark member of an agrarian community, this, this poor farmer who is doing a terrible job, it would seem, of supporting his family. When the children find the baby, Elora Danan, Willow is tempted at first to resist the call to adventure, but is distracted by the, the rapacious desires of the rather odious Burglecut. That's a, another great name. Uh, obviously. By the time Willow returns to the riverbank, his wife Kaya has fallen in love with the baby, his children are super into the baby, it's it, it's done, it's a done deal, and yet Willow is still taking responsibility for it. Willow is still, well, Willow is still the father. He is still the focal point of this community, and this is one of the really interesting ways, when I say this community, I don't mean the Nelman village in particular, I mean his familial community. This is one of the most interesting ways for me in which Willow deviates from the obviously inspirational source texts. If we think about the Lord of the Rings, if we think about the Hobbit and we think about the Shire and we think, of course, about the Nelman village here in Willow, it's easy, it's trivial to draw comparisons. Here they are. Basically, it's a Hobbit community. Essentially, it's a Hobbit community. They are engaged in agriculture. There's some like petty dispute, but, but no one's really a bad guy. They celebrate, they drink, they feast, they party. It's all good. But there are key ways in which Willow and either Bilbo Baggins or Frodo Baggins are nothing alike whatever. Completely dissimilar characters. And one of the most important ways in which that is true is that Willow is motivated by his family. I love the heartbreaking moment when Bavmorda's forces attack the Nelwyn village and it becomes clear that they're hunting for a baby and Willow races home, crying out, crying out Kaya as he bursts through the door. A genuinely great moment and a moment that we could never get from Bilbo or from Frodo because they are disconnected from their families. Their relationships are, are much less... I hesitate to say much less complicated. Of course, Frodo and Sam have one of the greatest relationships in literature, but they are, they are much less personal. Frodo has less of a, a paternalistic relationship with his direct community than Willow has with his. And I find that completely, completely fascinating. Yes. And literally, as Becca says here in the YouTube chat, literally found family. Here she is. She is found. She is our family. And I don't know, maybe there's a criticism that by the time Willow was called upon to stand up for the baby when he's, he's meeting with the High Aldwin, and the High Aldwin says, do you have love for this child? And Willow says, yes, yes, I do. Maybe that's a little fast. It's been like 35 minutes, you guys. But at the same time, it feels completely emotionally true for the man that Willow is. I, I just love it. I just love it. Um, I did want to talk a little about, uh, mentioning Star Wars, of course. I did want to talk a little about one of the more obvious connections. I, I guess there are two characters who clearly speak to a Star Wars parallel in this movie, and then we can kind of do some filtering with the extended cast, too. The two that stand out, of course, Mad Martigan is almost literally Han Solo. I mean, almost literally Han Solo. Val Kilmer does a great job playing his best Harrison Ford, playing his best Han Solo. That works out really rather beautifully. But Willow as Luke is really interesting. Because it's not a flat one-to-one -one comparison. You have to dig a little bit to get to the underlying motivation. But when you get to that underlying motivation, it seems to be almost identical. Throughout the first arc of this movie, Willow is very engaged and very invested in becoming a sorcerer. He wants to be apprenticed to the High Aldwin. 
And ultimately, of course, that doesn't work out. Willow discovers that he can be a sorcerer anyway, so on and so forth through the course of the movie. But what's unclear to me right at the beginning of the film is why. Why is Willow so invested in this, this magical career, this magical path? Is it the magic itself? Is it power? Is it status? Is it money? We don't know if the high old wind is, is paid some kind of stipend by the community. Is it simply security? Is it adventure and escape? It's really easy, I think, to look at Willow in the first instance, his desire to be taken as an apprentice by the high old wind, his desire to learn magic, to see that as a, a clear point of comparison with Luke Skywalker, who wants in the first instance to go to Toshi Station to get power converters, but more grandly, more, more specifically, more, more desperately, wants to leave Tatooine behind. He wants to go and have the adventure. But again, we end up with a problem because Luke is a 19-year-old farm boy with, I mean, an aunt and uncle, at least in the first instance, but otherwise no ties to the world whatsoever. Willow has a family. What is Willow's plan here? If it's a desire for adventure, then that seems to be, that seems to contain within it some implied criticism for his role as a father and a provider. I'm not quite sure how that works. Certainly, when he runs off with Elora Danan and, and Burglecut calls him out and says, while you are out here at the Daikini Crossroads, your crops are not getting planted. Your farm is going to die. Your family is going to be done. You are going to lose your land, and that is it. Willow still makes this choice, this choice for adventure. And one of the things that I'm really curious about, and I'm really curious how you guys see this unfolding in the course of the movie, is what informs Willow's decision-making process. Is he doing what he's doing because it's the right thing to do, which would be completely appropriate to a hero of his type, and I think to his character, as we see it evidenced in the movie itself? Or is there something else here? Is there a desire for greatness, for grandeur, for a kind of uniquity, a kind of narrative uniquity? Or, and this is the interesting third option, is Willa motivated by forces beyond his control? Is Willow motivated by prophecy, by ah, whatever force it is that is drawing the threads of this world together and keeping them moving forward? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Becca says he has faith in his wife and her abilities. Yes, but he doesn't, interestingly, and, and I only noticed this perhaps two or three times ago when I was watching the movie, he doesn't stand up to Burglecut. He could at that point say, Screw you, Burglecut. Kaya's got it under control. Kaya is the greatest, strongest woman that I have ever met, and she has that farm in shape. I know it. She is doing her thing so that I can do this thing. I would love that to happen, but it doesn't happen. Willow is clearly, he's, he's clearly conceding the point to Burglecut. He clearly believes that the farm is going to suffer as a consequence of his actions. Yes. Angela says it's a wish to improve himself and his station. Could be. Could be. Yeah. We're... Talking a lot about, uh, we're uh, talking a lot about sexual innuendo and we're talking a lot about Val Kilmer and those two things I doubt are disconnected from one another. Yes. Good. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Mariana says, just realized there's more sexual innuendo in Willow than in the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. There is more sex in Willow than in the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yes. Good. 
Gregory says, I don't think he chose adventure so much or was forced by prophecy, simply acted out of responsibility for the child. And Aaron says, could it be that an individual is looking for something to do, whether it be adventure, looking to be great? Is he trying to create a legend for himself or a legend that is himself? I should say. Um, both of those, uh, any of those, I think, are valid interpretations here. What is Willow's obligation to Elora Danan at the beginning of this movie? What is it that compels him to take action? We already talked about how his family immediately falls in love with this baby, but Willow, well, Willow just takes that about as far as you possibly can. Does he just love this child? Is this child as dear to him as his own children are? Possibly, though we would have to question then how swiftly that happened, because it really does seem to be a day before that's the case. Becca says there are more girls in Willow than the entire Lord of the Rings universe. There are more girls in the opening scene of Willow than there are in the entire Lord of the Rings universe. And this is one of the things that, that stood out to me most recently, actually, is, is the odd and specific diversity contained within Willow. I would argue that there are more prominent female characters in the movie Willow than there are prominent male characters, particularly if you kind of filter out for the scale of importance. Basically, you're looking at Willow and Mad Martigan. Then you're looking at Elora Danan, Finrazil, you're looking at Bavmorda herself, you're looking at Sorsha. Maybe you can make the case. I'm, I'm genuinely unsure, you know, how, how far we can draw that, where we draw the line of significant characters versus insignificant characters. But there are a lot of women in this movie, you guys, and that really changes, I think, its texture somewhat, while still allowing us to circumvent... I mean, let's be clear. Anytime that you are using the evil queen archetype, you are walking in dangerous territory. That is a bad part of town in which to find yourself because the evil queen archetype is loaded with misogynistic presuppositions. I think that this movie manages to body swerve most of them. It manages to get away with its setup almost untouched by ugliness, by misogyny. I think that it manages to do really rather well. I think that Sorsha is an absolutely fantastic character. I have my problems with Finn Rizal later in the story, but none of those problems are associated with her gender. She is simply undercooked. She is simply, I think, uh, somewhat underdeveloped as a character. But there are, throughout this story, strong and empowered and capable and brilliant women. And yes, Sorsha absolutely stands apart for me as a woman... <laughs> I was going to say, as a woman worthy of Mad Mardigan. I certainly don't mean that in universe. Mad Mardigan is a bad guy, you guys. This, this Han Solo archetype, that is nothing but trouble down the road. I guarantee it. What I mean is that narratively, Sorsha manages to be as important to the story as Mad Mardigan is. And those things, I think, that, that, that similarity, that duality, that, that almost symmetry between them, cannot be overlooked. That is a very difficult thing to do and a very difficult thing to do well. Yes. Matt Martigan, as Jonathan calls out here, even dresses as a girl at one point. Yeah, and we get to do some some broad, broad vaudeville comedy with that, and that's fine. I mean, it's, it's cute. Yes. Good. Good. A lot of beautiful, capable, and smart women, says Becca. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. All right, I got completely distracted now about where we are in this story. Um, <laughs> so we, um, 
Yes, Angela calls out here that uh, that this is the movie where Val Kilmer and Joanne Wally, later Joanne Wally Kilmer, met and fell in love, and they got married very shortly after the end of this film. And I do not think that is a coincidence. Obviously, okay. I don't want to talk about this in the, in the span of this discussion. Val Kilmer is a guy who has had some criticism and a guy who has clearly had some problems. I don't necessarily want to go too far into that. But what I will say is this. He is incredibly roguish and charming in this movie. And the sexual chemistry between Mad Martigan and Sorsha is surprising. It is surprising. It is on point. And perhaps even more surprising, it genuinely works for me. I genuinely like their relationship. It is broad. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This is not a delicate study of, of a blossoming relationship here. This is slap slap kiss adventure at its at its most 1940s Republic serial standard. You know, it is it is slap slap kiss at its most operatic, I should say. But within that frame, it absolutely works, and I am absolutely compelled by it. Yes. Good. Good. Okay. Let's um Let's skip ahead then. So, so we have this moment where uh, where Willow undergoes the High Old Winds test. Which finger contains the magic, the power to change the world? And he, of course, fails, which makes you wonder if there had been another three people standing up there for the High Old Winds test, presumably one of them would have earned his spot as apprentice, right? I mean, you probably shouldn't do this kind of, of I don't know, open book test. If, it's, if the prize is so important, though, of course, the prize... Who knows how important it, it really is. Um, so, so Willow is turned down as apprentice, and then the Nelwyn community comes under attack by the forces of Queen Bavmorda searching for searching for Elora Danone. Jonathan says, when Mad puts his hands to his heart while watching Sorcia sleep, I laugh every time. That is no kidding. I'm a big fan of the movie Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which I think, aside from this, is my favorite Val Kilmer performance. Um... There are moments in this movie that are are basically my favorite things that Val Kilmer has ever done uh, on camera. So yes, certainly that sequence, broad, genuinely funny, genuinely warm, which is a thing that you don't often get from from Val Kilmer. I feel yes, good. Um, so uh, what happens uh, when when the community comes under attack? I mentioned earlier the points of of separation between our understanding of the Nelman village and our understanding of the Shire in The Lord of the Rings and in The Hobbit. And this is one of the most immediate and forceful, and if you aren't paying very close attention, it is one of the easiest to miss. When the rabid dog beasts, whatever they are, attack and, and tear apart the crib looking for babies, the Nelwyn community responds with a militia. We get armed soldiers who charge in and kill the beast. Now, that is important. That is crucial because that tells us a lot about the position of the Nelwyn community in the context of the larger world. Hobbits don't have an armed militia. They don't have a standing army. They basically, effectively, have little to no capacity to protect themselves or even to enforce the laws. There are a handful of beaters and sheriffs throughout the Shire, and that is it. They certainly don't have an armed militia in this order. But, and, and it's clear from the later discussion at the town hall, too, that these guys are, to some degree, professional soldiers. They are, to some degree, warriors, or whatever passes for warriors within the Nelwyn community. Now, that means, necessarily, that the Nelwyn community must be under threat, that it is not safe and secluded as the Shire 
is. It means that the outside world is impinging upon the Nelman community on an ongoing basis, and that simply isn't true of the Shire. That changes, though, fundamentally our relationship with the outside world. It changes our our ability to be reclusive. It changes our ability to be withdrawn. If the outside world is coming in and attacking us so often and with such force that we require an armed militia to respond, then our place in the outside world, is it must be necessarily reciprocal. We must be... We must be extending outward just as the outside world is encroaching inward. And we'll look a little at that as we leave and undertake our, our great quest here. Yeah. Good. Good. A little more violent than Hobbit, says Becca, which I completely agree. There's such little badasses, says Mariana. Yes, absolutely. It is fantastic. I love that moment uh, when, when they vault over the fence and take on the, it's, guys, it's so good. It's so good. At the town meeting, a crisis is called. The baby is revealed. The plan is set in motion. Willow takes the baby, or will take the baby, across the Great River to the Daikini Crossroads. And the Daikini Crossroads is one of those phrases that, that, that haunted my childhood. The Daikini Crossroads is so good. The High Aldwin trusts not in magic or in divination, though clearly both exist within this world. He is capable of magic, We'll shortly see him transform a rock into a bird. And he is clearly, or, or people are clearly capable of divination because you can't move in this world without hearing some kind of prophecy. But rather than trusting in either of those things, the High Aldwin trusts in Willow's love for Elora Danan. And this is one of the points in the film where we will actively reject magic as a tool, as even a power, we will turn away from the supernatural to the completely natural. We will turn away from the realm of fairy, if you like, from, from magic and from sorcery and from power itself to mundanity and to human connection. That is going to be pivotal in the climax of this movie. But right here, we're already queuing the, re uh, queuing the viewer, I should say, not the reader, queuing the viewer to question our presuppositions about magic. I think it is probably fair to say that magic does more harm than good throughout this film. Um, yes, good. Crossroads are always important, says Becca, literally choosing your path. Absolutely. Those, those points of intersections, uh, points of intersection, excuse me, are themselves thresholds. There is always something something otherworldly. There is always something liminal about a crossroads. It is a meeting place. It is a place between worlds. It is defined as a point between, as a threshold. And that is always true. Go back into, into modern uh, mythic culture. Go back into, into the, the urban myths of the 20th century. Go back into the pre-urban myths of the 18th and 19th centuries. Go back to fairy tales. Go back to our oldest stories and you will find crossroads here, there, and everywhere. You will find crossroads because they are points of totemic and magical significance. Crossroads are always important. Um, good. Good, good, good. Um, so even now, at the beginning of the quest, even now as Willow is getting ready to set out, the bounds are strictly set. He is going to take the child to the crossroads, surrender the child into the hands of the first daikini that he comes across, and then return home, because the outside world is no place for a Nelwyn, which, again, speaks to that idea that 
if the outside world is so interested in the Nailman village that a militia is necessary, then maybe the outside world is a place for a Nailman. The, the, the conceptual framework here feels very different than we might expect it to feel, but that doesn't necessarily mean worse. I'm not convinced at all, at all, that this inconsistency is a mistake or is the product of an oversight. I think there may be something of real substance there. Yeah. So we cut from there to a, uh, a very brief scene with uh, Queen Bavmorda. She lambasts her daughter Sorsha for failing to find the baby as she lambasts every minion who crosses her path in the course of the movie. Then she orders the, I mean, outright Vader-esque General Kale to assist her. Bavmorda's advisor tells her that he has divined a future betrayal from Sorsha, and Bavmorda tells him that she trusts her daughter, which is perhaps kind of insane for someone who is going to the lengths to which Bavmorda is going because of a prophecy. I'm not sure why this one particular prophecy is worth all of her time and attention, and her most trusted advisor telling her that her daughter will betray her is worth no time at all, except that, again, we're cued to question the power of prophecy. We're cued to question the power of magic. Willow and the others uh, avoid Bavmorda's soldiers. They continue their journey to the crossroads, and we start to approach the end of the first act. Willow discovers Mad Mardigan in the crow's cage. His companions, save, of course, for the brilliant Migosh, all abandon him. Uh, we get this beat that I mentioned earlier, where Eric passes with his army, and we get the sense that there is a larger conflict, that there is a larger world, that, that forces are moving out there in the darkness, and we can only dimly perceive them. Um, it also serves to remind us that that while Elora Danan is not the locus of the sole locus of conflict, she is actually our great hope. And that too is important and will inform some of our decision making as we move forward. The world is too large for Anelwin, though, and the Willow wrestles with the decision. He and Migosh surrender Elora Danan into the care of Mad Martigan and return home. We are almost 40 minutes into the movie at this point, and that is the end of the first act. We, um, <laughs> Garrett says, that's how you know that Willow is an 80s movie. It has a Vader clone. Yeah, um, it was very difficult when watching not to think of, of General Kale as Vader and not to think of Queen Bavmorda as being like unto Emperor Palpatine. And Sorsha, of course, occupies the Leia role. So there are lines there that aren't completely symmetrical with Star Wars. They are not, and certainly not identical with Star Wars, but they are suggestive of a similar shape, aren't they? They're, they're awfully close right there. Um, on the way home, Willow and Migosh uh, encounter the bird carrying Elora Danan, and it's tempting to overlook this, but we should probably pause on it for just a second, because this is actually our second incident of something random, pseudo-random, unlikely, certainly, happening to Elora Danan that brings her back to Willow. The first is the river. The second is the bird. If Willow and Migosh had never seen the bird, they would never have known that anything had happened to Elora Danan at all. They would have returned home. They would have been met, as they are speculating at the time, with, with celebration and with medals, and everything would have been great. But instead, some force brings Elora back to Willow. And that's a fascinating thing. Yeah. Um, I'm well aware now that I'm actually running really long here, you guys, which I know it's traditional for me to say that. I was honestly expecting this, this uh, discussion to be done in an hour, and it doesn't really seem like that's going to be the case. Um, 
From there, though, we end up with the brownies. We meet these diminutive fairy folk who effortlessly capture Willow and Migos when they are taken to meet the elf queen, Chalindria, who tasks Willow with the care of the baby and a quest to meet with the sorcerer, Finrazel. And it is impossible. It is outright impossible for me to think about this sequence in the movie, to look at the sequence in the movie and not be reminded of J.R.R. Tolkien's, basically J.R.R. Tolkien's entire discourse on the subject of elves. In the oldest stories, Elves are simply fairies, but fairies were not tiny sprite folk. Fairies were full-grown and strong and dangerous and sexy. These are beguiling, bewitching, terrifying creatures who live out beyond the fringes of our mundane world and personal experience. Now, over the years, they became diminished. They were reduced in size and in stature and in power until now, if you mention fairies to people, they will think most readily of Tinkerbell. And here we even get a Tinkerbell fairy. There are fairies flitting around. These are presumably the fairies who created the Dust of Broken Heart that we'll see later in the story. The brownies seem to be a different tribe entirely, though, because of course I'm moving through uh, The Hobbit right now in my seminar series there and back again, I'm thinking of the wood elves. I'm thinking of the wood elves of Mirkwood. I'm thinking of the elves who are described as more dangerous and less wise. There is something there to the contrast between fairy and brownie. But then in the midst of this, we get Cherlindria. We get, I mean, not Galadriel, but not a million miles away from Galadriel. We get a character who is possessed clearly of enormous power, clearly of enormous insight, and who guides our hero gently and lovingly forward. That's enormous. That is incredibly significant because we see very directly, I think, between brownies and, and fairies, pixies, whatever they're supposed to be, brownies and fairies and, and this elf queen, we see basically the entire arc of fairy culture as, as it relates to our popular culture. You know, we come from this this benevolent, certainly, but but terrifying force all the way down to the cute little Tinkerbell who, who kisses Willow on the nose. That's the arc of fairydom in popular culture, you guys. Yes. Um, good. Becca says they're adorable and wild and they make my heart happy. Plus, they have a super cool queen. They certainly do. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> brownies are the best. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, the brownies are actually great. And and there's an interesting um, there's an interesting story that I was reading about this. That, that basically, the the actress who played the brownies, who you'll have to forgive me, I don't have in front of me the actress who played the brownies, Kevin Pollock and Rick Overton, uh, rule and Frangin, Frangin, Frangine. I'm not sure how we pronounce that. Um, that they didn't interact with the rest of the cast at all because, of course, all of their stuff was shot against green screen. They were composited in. They. I, I think the story is that they met neither Val Kilmer nor uh, Warwick Davis in the course of making Willow. That, that basically they made a separate movie that was overlaid into this movie. I find them very funny. I think they're kind of adorable. Yes, good. So Willow at this point sends Migos home and we move through the in scene where we get a little foreshadowing of the Dust of Broken Heart, which is a nice trick. That's a nice, it's, it's very much a standardized kind of fairy tale beat, but it works quite nicely. And of course, we're then forcibly reintroduced to Ned Martigan again. Hey, you guys, what are the chances? Once again, 
we get this suggestion that there is simply more happening beyond the frame of the movie. There's just more story here. We don't know exactly how Mad Mardigan got here. We don't know exactly what his plan is. Was he really just seducing this random woman in a tavern, or is this part of a plot, part of a plan? What is his end game here? We'll never find out. It isn't important. But we come into, we crash into the middle of his story, and he joins ours and moves forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, we get the first of our, <coughs> excuse me, we get the first of our kind of open conflicts against Sorsha and her man. And this may be the point at which we start to feel for the first time a lack of narrative unity. This is the point where perhaps we start to feel as though things are a little more ramshackle than we would like them to be. We'll definitely talk about that when we get into the third act. But this, to me, having watched it several times uh, very recently, this is the point where I start to think, okay, we're, we're just kind of, everything has been so focused and so clean up till now. And now it's just kind of, here's the setup for the adventure sequence. Here's the setup for the action sequence. We're just going to go forward with that. And it's maybe a little under-motivated, but we'll see how you guys feel about that. Um, so this is this is the um, the the wagon escape sequence, which I think is genuinely great. It is a genuinely um, exciting and 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 engaging chase sequence. It, it works for me really rather well. Um, we also get uh, the beat following this, where Willow and Mad Martigan kind of unite in the protection of Elora Danan, and we get importantly Willow's first experimentation with magic. This is the moment where Willow blows himself into the tree with his spell. This is the first real magic, quote-unquote, that we have seen Willow perform. And again, that is significant. That is wildly significant. It's actually wildly significant, I think, in a couple of different ways. We'll talk later about the thematic consequence of magic in the world of Willow, but right now we can talk about what magic is and how it works and, and where the power comes from. Later in the movie, Finrazel will urge Willow when she, he's trying the transformation spell to believe in the words. And she will say this as he is chanting nonsense words, as he is chanting a, a phrase that he has obviously learned by rote rather than a phrase that he, that he understands with any kind of, of deep clarity. I don't know what to make of the magic in this movie. You guys, I don't know how to understand the rules of magic. There's clearly a verbal component, but we also rely upon spellcasting implements. We rely on, on the apparatus of spellcasting, such as the wand, for example. But I don't know exactly where the magic comes from or exactly how it works or exactly how it is, it is utilized. It seems awfully soft, which I think is really interesting. Um, I do think that this is a perfectly valid point of, uh, point of uh, criticism here. I do think that it is possible to look at Willow and say, the magic makes no sense. It was, it was thrown out. There was no kind of, of structure or, or, or foundation laid for it. It was just, eh, whatever we need right now, whatever's funniest or whatever's most efficacious in terms of moving the plot forward, that's how magic works and that's what it does. But... As this is a story that is somewhat preoccupied with the undercutting of its own premise, particularly with regard to magic, I wonder if the, the amorphous, imprecise, incalculable nature of magic is somehow deliberate, or at least, you know, semi-deliberate. 
because ultimately we're going to see the triumph of mundanity over magic. And that's a really big deal, particularly in a movie. Okay. The equivalent of this is that at the end of Star Wars, while they're engaged in the Death Star trench run, Luke turns off his targeting computer and destroys the Death Star, not by using the force, not by harmonizing himself with this, this, this strange universal energy field, but just because he's a really good pilot. It's the last moment of Star Wars A New Hope as Luke saying, actually, it wasn't that tough a shot. I'm just really, really good. And, and someone says, hey, did you use the Force? And he said, no, the Force doesn't work. It's fine. I'm good. I didn't need it. That would be a really weird turn right at the end of the movie. But that is exactly and literally the turn that we make at the end of Willow. At the end of Willow, he completely rejects magic and relies instead on trickery. He does his disappearing pig trick. Willow is resourceful in that moment. But in a film in which we spend a lot of time and effort building up his magical power, taking him through the arc that would usually lead to a legitimate kind of sorcery or a legitimate sorceress ability at the end of the film, we, we don't just fail to make good on that. We actively reject it. And that is such a profound point. That is such an, uh, an interesting and unexpected step that I can't help but see echoes of it through the rest of the film and wonder if the ramshackle approach to magic in general is somehow intentional. Are we just supposed to be super suspicious of magic? Well, certainly not comprehensively so, no. There are clearly times in the movie when we are supposed to believe in the absolute power, the, the, the unshakable, unquestionable efficacy of magical powers, of, of spells specifically. But around the fringes, it gets a little soft. Around the fringes, it gets a little interesting, and I'm not sure entirely what to make of that. Yeah. Good. Was it more than one writer, asks Angela, very perceptively. Ramshackle usually means more hands involved. It was not. It was uh, one story by credit for George Lucas and one script writer. So that doesn't mean, of course, that it couldn't be Ramshackle. And we should remember, too, that it isn't just about the writer, that, that movie making is an enormously collaborative endeavor. And we're not just looking at the writer, but we're looking at Ron Howard, the director, and we're looking at producers up and down the, the, the crew here. We're looking at editing, of course, too. And we're looking at studio intervention. There's a ton of different things that could lead to it feeling not quite as focused as it should be. But particularly because the first act is so focused, I, I'm prepared to give it at least a partial benefit of the doubt regarding its intentionality. Yes. Good. Um, yeah. As Becca says, Willow doesn't need magic. He learns he is powerful all by himself. He super does. That is exactly the moral of this story. That is exactly what happens in the climax of the story, except we don't herald that at all. Even the high old one, when he's giving the pep talk to Willow, who says, you don't believe in yourself is talking about magic. He is talking about Willow's ability to access magic through his own internal confidence, through his own internal awareness. Yeah. Chris Tesboni asks, is it so dissimilar to the Ewoks defeating the Empire with sticks? That is a conversation for another time. That is a conversation I have already had another time. It is a conversation I will happily have again with you, Bonnie. Come on over, bring scotch. All right. Hmm. Speaking of which, Willow leaves Elordinan with the brownies and um, journeys then to the island of Finrazel. And I mentioned earlier that Finrazel doesn't really work for me as a character. She is... It's, it's odd. Because the arc of these stories is generally very traditional. You begin with Gandalf. 
And then Gandalf leaves the party halfway through, forcing them to stand on their own. What we get here is kind of the inverse of that. Willow begins pretty much by himself. He begins, you know, certainly by the time we hit the transition where he sends Migos home and goes on with the boy, post-Brownies, uh, goes on with the boy, excuse me, goes on with Elora Danan. This is this post-Brownie sequence. Um, now that he's been given his quest, he goes on alone and accumulates resources as he goes. And when one of those resources is this Gandalf-like figure, I'm just not sure about it. It just, it, she doesn't quite work for me as a character throughout the entire movie. And she doesn't quite work for me specifically because spellcasting seems to have primarily a verbal component. It seems as though if you can speak, you might be able to cast a spell. She can speak, can't cast spells, apparently. So I don't know quite what to make of it. She just, yeah, just doesn't really work, doesn't really sit comfortably um, for me at all. Let's, um, Yes, good. Let, let's skip ahead a little bit here. Um, we get the turning point in the second act here where our, our heroes are captured. And that turning point speaks to a change in Willow's motivation. His, his motivation originally was to get Elora Danan to safety. Now his motivation is to recover Elora Danan. He wants, he wants to draw her back. Uh, yes. Um, yes. So this is when we end up in the snowbound camp. They break free. The ensorcelled Mad Mardigan falls in love with Sorsha while trying to rescue Elora Danan. This is the uh, scene that we discussed earlier. I think it's extremely... This is reminiscent to of, of that J.R.R. Tolkien says in his essay on fairy stories. There's this important point of clarification that fairy stories are not stories about fairies. We generally don't tell stories about fairies. What we tell stories about are mortals who end up in the realm of fairy. That seems to be the case here. Matt Martigan is immediately smitten with Sorsha. And the scene plays out, I think, really rather nicely. And I like that she is holding him at knife point the whole time. She does not yield her agency. She does not give up her strength or her authority. They are about to kiss at the end of the sequence before General Kale comes in because she quite wants to make out with Matt Martigan, which, okay, that is fine. That works. When he takes the kiss, steals the kiss from her right at the very end of the sequence. I'm a little less happy about that. That's a little more traditional kind of, of swashbuckling adventure. That, that's an odd moment. But everything up until that point, I'm actually kind of on board with. Yeah. That's the moment when General Kale interrupts with the recaptured Willow and Elora Danan, and we escape the camp on a shield sled. When you talk about this movie with people... Um, Basically, two things are discussed in, in my experience. Two things are discussed. The, well, maybe three if you include the transformation into pigs at the end, which I think left a lot of people with harrowing nightmares. I think if you are a couple of years younger than me, if you were six or seven or eight in 1988 and you saw this film, or if you saw it later when you were younger, uh, I think that the pig transformation sequence can be completely harrowing. I think that can be nightmare fuel right there. But if that didn't touch you so much, the two things that you will remember are the shield escape sequence and, of course, the two-headed fire-breathing monster when we get to Tira's lean later in the story. This is just great, I think. The... The entire stunt sequence down the mountain is really rather good. Seeing Matt Martigan possessed of his full abilities now, fighting with a sword, which is always interesting to see, that works beautifully. They are united in heroism. The whole thing works. I could live without Matt Martigan kind of tumbling down the mountain in this, this perfect cylinder of snow right at the end. That is a comedic beat one step too far for me. But apart from that, everything works. Yes. Yes. 
The troll scene too, says Mariana. Yes. Good. <laughs> the the shield sled is is a big moment for people. Yeah. No, the stop motion Hydra is is terrible. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Yes. Mm, mm. Great. And then we get one of these moments, which I mentioned earlier, one of these odd beats that feels almost like a contrivance. And yet, and yet, the scale of the canvas here is so broad that it is very tempting to look at this not as contrivance, but simply as the intersection of unrelated stories. Because right here in this random village of all places, we stumble upon the hiding place of Eric and his uh, army, the remnant, I guess, of his army. He's lost a lot of men fighting, uh, fighting Bavmorda's forces. And this is where we set our, 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 our marker. This is where we decide the next part of the quest. We are going to Tirasleen here, along with the captured Sorsa, Sorsha, excuse me, guided in crow form by Finrazale. And again, I mentioned earlier that things are starting to feel a little ragged, that things are starting to feel a little, a little undercooked, perhaps just a little undermotivated. And this for me is a perfect example. We get this great encounter with Mad Martigan and Sorsha in the in Bavmordian. Can I do that to that word? In the Bavmordian camp. That works great. Then we have to go through this beat of him capturing her so that she can immediately escape again on the road to Tiraslene. It's just so we can get a few more scenes with them together. It's just so we can develop their relationship that little bit further. It's unnecessary. We could have done all of that in one scene or found some other better way of motivating this. Ultimately, Sorsha escapes. There is, as I said, some rampant sexual tension, which works rather nicely. Then we arrive at Tearsling to find it abandoned, except for the trolls. This is, I would argue, the most iconic moment in the movie. It's an action set piece in which Bavmorda's forces are routed, albeit with, with Elordanon as a captive. General Kale takes Elordanon, but her forces lose the day. Sorsha finally defects. Manmartigan proves not just his heroism, but his legendary heroism. And Willow, well, here's the thing. Willow once again proves his magical prowess. He once again proves his magical skill, and he does it in the most destructive, dangerous, terrifying way. Finrazel tells him to use the wand on the troll. The troll is transformed into the giant two-headed fire-breathing Hydra monster, which, by the way, is named in the text, uh, it is named in the text, the Ebersisk. Named, of course, for Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, which is kind of cute. The Ebersisk, this, this awful two-headed monster. Willow creates that thing. And while ultimately things work out okay, it is still incredibly dangerous. So my question is this. What are we to learn from Willow's inadvertent creation of this hideous, hideous monster? Let's try and forget the sequence where the troll is actually turned inside out or whatever it is that happens to the troll in order to birth the Ebersisk. We need to focus on the monster itself. Is this eucatastrophic? Is this a disaster that turns out for the best thanks to the intercession of grace? Was that prophesied? Is that why Finrazel tells Willow to do it in the first place? Is this an absolute failure of Willow's magic? Is this a terrible thing? Is this just a mistake? Was this supposed to happen? I genuinely don't know what to make of it, but it is profound. It is impactful. Yeah. Good. Ultimately, the army of good arrives and intercedes, driving off Bavmorda's forces. It's 
a really great sequence that does have a little bit of 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 Pelinor fields to it a little bit of yes yes um it, you know good enough good enough um the army of good then arrives and besieges Bavmorda's fortress with the intent to attack but Bavmorda transforms the entire army into pigs including some of that genuinely creepy special effects work that i described earlier and again this is perhaps a little undermotivated because at the same time while it is visually impressive while it is striking and while it has i'm sure ruined the childhood of a number of people it is ultimately hollow because we then immediately undo it it doesn't feel as though the stakes are aligned quite as carefully as they should be at this point yes garen asks is it possible that the sorcia madmartic intention takes cues not only from han and leia but from aura and baron and flash gordon uh disclaimer my only explosion to flash gordon is the filmation series and tv movie i'm not sure how you managed for that to be your only exposure to flash gordon but I mean, in a sense, yes. In another sense, both of those things are much, much older traditions. They go back to to Shakespeare. They go back to to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I mean, this this slap slap kiss dynamic, this this warrior couple dynamic, is literally, literally, literally a tale as old as time. I mean, that is about as as primal and elemental a a romance fantasy as you can possibly concoct. I'm glad that we've moved past the point where the story is concluded by the unworthy man taming and domesticating the woman. Hey, Taming of the Shrew, I'm looking at you. Though I have to say, I, I use Taming of the Shrew as freely as anyone does to talk about troublesome and problematic endings. The problem with Taming of the Shrew is that that was not the original ending. That is not the intended ending. There is a framing device around the Taming of the Shrew. This is as I'm sure you all know, uh, Shakespeare's famous play of a a willful woman who is brought to heel as all willful women should be. You guys, that was heavy irony. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, I was making a face to the camera that you couldn't see, but I just want to reassure you that that was in no way sincere right then. Um, in A Taming of the Shrew, th- th- there was a framing device that suggested that this was a ridiculous fantasy, that the entire outcome of the story is intended to be ironic. That framing device has, with applicable and equal irony, been lost, so, or, or all but lost. There are fragments of it which, which remain. So now we generally play the end of the Taming of the Shrew straight, which is not what Shakespeare intended and is not good storytelling, you guys. I'm treading perilously close to promising you all a Shakespeare seminar series, and I don't want to do that today, so I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> So we end up outside the uh, outside Bavmorda's fortress. We get the transformation into pigs. We get Willow transforming Finrazel back into her human form, and then the undoing, I guess, of the transformation into pigs. We get some posturing. We get some theatricality. None of this is really doing much to advance the plot. The timeline seems a little weird. We're, we're supposed to be doing this amazingly dramatic ritual at night, but then dawn comes, and it's just, it's the next day, and it's fine, I suppose. From there, though, we move into our climax and the assault on the fortress. We get, I mean, in part, this is just big picture set piece. This is just another action set piece, as we might expect. Sorsha leads Finrazel and Willow into the ritual chamber. There is a fight. There is a magical showdown. Eric dies outside. Pour one out for Eric. Madmartigan kills General Kale. Finally, Bavmorda seems to kill Finrazel, and it falls to Willow to save Elora Danan, not with sorcery, not with magic. And thank goodness we've spent no time at all investing ourselves in Willow's relationship with sorcery and with magic. Instead, he uses the old disappearing pig 
trick. And this is the triumph of mundanity over magic. In The Lord of the Rings, in The Hobbit too, to a certain degree, we see aspects of this conflict. A few of you have called out, in fact, here in the YouTube chat, a tension between Took and Baggins, that, that Baggins is domestic and Took is adventuresome. And those two things in combination are what give Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit and, and Frodo Baggins in The Lord of the Rings their unique and defined power. This is not that story. This is not, I think, the triumph of Baggins over Took. Willow doesn't turn to his disappearing pig trick versus real magic because he somehow intuits or somehow understands that that is the right approach, that, that the evil Queen Bavmorda can deal with this operatic tone, but she cannot deal with the more domestic tone. There is a story there. You could do something with that. That could be potentially interesting, but that is not the story that we're telling here. He turns to the disappearing pig trick when he runs out of other options, when he runs out of magic, but it is the disappearing pig trick that works. That is what saves the day. That ultimately is what destroys Queen Bavmorda. So often in storytelling, we learn what a story is only by the way in which it ends. And it is difficult for me now to look at Willow as anything other than a rejection of the classic tropes of high fantasy magic. This is not a story in which an enchanted sword saves the day. This is not a story in which the hero finally learns the skill, the spell, whatever it is that will allow him to vanquish his enemies. The hero doesn't even make a sacrifice here at the end. It is just wit. It is just skill. It is practice. It is a craftsman's trick. And I find that genuinely fascinating, genuinely curious, because throughout, as we've discussed, magic is so much more an impediment than it is an aid. Magic is so much worse than pretty much anything else that happens in the story. Magic gets you in trouble. But ultimately... We are saved by the illusion of magic. We are saved by a literal illusion. We are saved by trickery. And that's enormously fascinating to me. Yes, yes. Good. That takes us pretty much to the end of the story. Although I should, I should point out, yes, that the core conflict is framed like this. At the beginning of the story, Willow has trouble standing up for himself. The High Old Wind tells Willow, you need to have more faith in yourself. If you'd have more faith in yourself and you'd gone with your first thought, best thought, you would be my apprentice right now. I mean, you wouldn't because you'd still have to take this baby to the Daikini Crossroads, but otherwise you would be my apprentice. You should have more faith in yourself and then you will be able to use magic. And Finn Rizal repeats that lesson as we move through the story. Again and again, we are hit with this idea that if Willow can just focus, if Willow can just concentrate, if Willow can just do the thing, then he will be a great sorcerer. Ultimately, Willow does learn faith in himself. But what saves the day, what, what overcomes evil in the context of the story is not the magic that is unlocked by having faith in himself. It is just the faith in himself. It is just... His, his own self-confidence that allows him to execute the disappearing pig trick and destroy Bavmorda. I've just spent, what, an hour and 20 minutes talking about Willow. I have watched this movie repeatedly over the course of the last few days. I'm going to go back and watch it again. I'm going to go back and, and continue 
to look at it, partly because it is just a wildly enjoyable action adventure romp. I think the snow slides, the snow, hmm, the snow sled shield scene, thank you, is really rather good. I think that the wagon chase sequence is really rather good. And of course, the battle at Tiraslin is, is enormously satisfying and engaging and is, I think, in the pre-Lord of the Rings timeline, probably the greatest action set piece of its time. I think that it, it works, or uh, of its of its form, it works really rather beautifully, and, and I adore it. So I will return to this movie, and will, I think, continue to try and figure this movie out. And I'm not sure if I'm giving it too much grace. I'm not sure if I'm giving it, if I'm imbuing it with too much trust, if I'm giving it too much credit for intentionality and for purpose. And honestly, as we've discussed a thousand times, thanks to death of the author, that doesn't matter a damn. I see things of sophistication and value buried just under the surface of this story. And I'm going to continue to try and figure them out. We may well be doing some kind of Willow live tweet in a couple of weeks. So stick around for that. Yes. Yes. The High Aldwin guy, Jonathan says in the YouTube chat, basically calls out the theme of the story. Is there a term for that? Um, not a specific term that I can think of, but he certainly lampshades it. Yes, he he makes explicit the implicit. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, and yet, says John, and yet, and yet his hard work is rewarded by a book of spells and a promise that he will become a great sorcerer, which to me goes back against the message of the triumph of mundanity and wit. You're entirely right, John. Right at the end of the movie, we get this idea that Willow's future is now defined that, that he has this great and magical future to look forward to even though it wasn't the exercise of magic that 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 saved the day that that earned him this reward that that changed the world i don't know what to make of it and it may well be i'm, I'm sure that some of you are rolling your eyes right now in fact i can see it that's completely fine it may well be that this is just ramshackle it may well be that this is just unintentional but i find enough here of weight and interest and significance that Ah, then I'm tempted, you guys. I'm tempted. That will do it. I ended up running a little longer than I planned, but not too much longer, which is a good place to be. I hope that you have enjoyed this one-shot discussion of Willow. If you have thoughts, then by all means, get in touch. You will be able to post them over on the Patreon page when this goes up. I'll figure something out with a uh, podcast feed for the one-shot lectures. Uh, stay tuned to at Point North Media and at Paper Bullets over on Twitter for more information about that. If you have enjoyed this special one-shot discussion, then good news, because there's going to be another one tomorrow. Tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern, I am going to have the long, long, long-awaited discussion of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, the 2010 Edgar Wright movie that I find to be completely overwhelming in its charm and its heart and its ambition. I love this movie. It is no kidding, no kidding in my top five movies of all time. I adore Scott Pilgrim versus the world, and I am going to talk about it tomorrow night. That is 9 p.m. Eastern. I do hope that you will join me. It will be right here on the YouTube page. If you have a moment today, if you enjoy what has happened here today, if you would like to see more of it, if you would like to support what I'm doing over at Point North Media, then I would really appreciate it. Head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash pointnorthmedia, all one word, and pledge your support a dollar a month, whatever you can afford. It all helps. It all lets me 
do more of this, to take a couple of hours here on an afternoon, on a rainy Oklahoma City afternoon, and talk about stories with you fabulous people. I really appreciate it. The next milestone goal, which we are approaching rather rapidly, actually, I'm, I'm glad and thrilled and grateful to say, the next milestone goal involves an upgrade of my video production capabilities here in the studio. So sharper video, better looking lights, we'll get it all worked out, it's gonna be great. If you could head on over to patreon.com slash pointnorthmedia, I would sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. And to all of you who already have, thank you. Thank you. You are making this entire thing possible, and I'm enormously grateful. That will do it for today. I will be back tomorrow with Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Until then, take care.